Philippians chapter 2 this evening. Uh, There is no handout. I'm just covering two verses. I figure you should be able to follow just two verses this evening without the handout. Uh, We are looking forward to the Lord's table uh, after I'm done preaching this evening, and so we're going to celebrate that as well together uh, here. As we look at Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 uh, together. And as we come to this section, uh, Paul turns the attention of the Philippians' uh, way of thinking um, from a focus on humility or having a humble mindset and and that connection uh, that there would be to corporate unity uh, to a way of thinking where he emphasizes obedience or more specifically being selfless in our behavior. In the previous section, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that section uh, about humility, if you remember how it came out, uh, Paul, in verses 1 through 4, described the great need for humi- humility, and then he gave an example. And we learned from that example today, Jesus Christ, who kept stepping down and descending, and then God exalts him and gives him a name. And so you had the need followed by an example. In my opinion, in Philippians 2, 12 and beyond, the same thing happens with the virtue of selflessness. In verses 12 through 18, Paul will describe the great need for selflessness in the congregation to the churches of Philippi. And then he's going to follow up the great need with some examples, specifically two examples of believers who are selfless in their approach to other life. Those two examples are Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so if you look down in your Bible at verse 21 of this text, you see that uh, what Paul says about Timothy in particular is, he said, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But, but uh, actually, we should even go back up to verse 20. Um, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he exalts the example of Timothy because Timothy is concerned for the interest of other people. You see, he's an example of selflessness in his Christian life and ministry experience. And then the example of Epaphroditus, if you look specifically down in verse 26, you'll see Paul said some similar things about Epaphroditus. Look at verse 26, um, where he says, For he has been longing for you all. Okay, and we'll take the next several weeks to actually talk and drill in more about Epaphroditus. But he has this great longing for the people of the churches of Philippi. And Epaphroditus is specifically listed as an example of being selfless. And so tonight, we'll look briefly at Paul's call to work hard at living in a selfless way. Have you ever had a job before that involved much hard work? You say, well, I'm living in one, right? (laughs) I remember uh, as I was making my way through Bible college, I worked several summers I think it was five for Allied Van Lines, moving furniture. It's not a skill I normally, you know, but for the sake of illustration, I've got to give it out. But it's not a skill you like to actually advertise. I worked for Allied Van Lines, moving furniture. My dad had actually worked there for, uh, since the time that he was 16, and so he got me uh, the job. To be fair, I actually learned how to work hard from my dad. And observing him, I remember as a small boy at one time, my father taking a burlap strap in our basement of our house, 
putting that burlap strap around a, a full-size upright refrigerator, putting it around that, holding it here like this, leaning forward and walking out of the house all by himself, walking uh, down the sidewalk and up our inclined driveway, getting it to the truck. He sets it down and then somehow gets it in the truck by himself. Okay, so that's the sort of dad I had. I learned hard work from my dad, but I, I remember uh, the summers that I worked for Allied. I remember working in a three-story house in which the tenant had been evicted because he was a hoarder. And uh, normally our boss was all about wearing the appropriate uh, uniform to work, but this night he called all of us the night before and he said, tomorrow I want you to wear clothes that you'll never wear again. Guys, I knew we were in trouble. I remember going to this house and there were stacks of magazine that went, magazines that actually went from the ceiling in some locations to very near the, the roof of that building. I remember you couldn't even walk through some rooms without digging out a trail. I remember picking up pieces of furniture and having that furniture kind of deteriorate in your hands in the basement because it was so wet. Or picking up furniture and having things kind of scurry away as you did this. I learned hard work working for Allied Van Lines that summer. I remember the day when I, when I with my 20-year-old cousin, show, showed up to help an out-of-town driver. The driver was an old man, and he explained to us right at the beginning, he said, I'm just a driver. I'm paying you to unload this entire semi by yourself. He said, I will fold pads or be in the cab if you need me, but I'm not touching a piece of furniture. And so my cousin and I unloaded the entire semi by ourselves. And the hardest part of this day was we were about 50 to 75 yards away from the front door. That's as close as he could get. We checked in in the morning at uh, 5 a.m. We checked out the following morning at 2 a.m. 21 straight hours. I remember the last day I worked for Allied, after five years, five summers, my dad met me after work. And he congratulated me with a sarcastic smirk on his face. And he said, Brent, if this ministry thing doesn't work out for you, I can always get you this job. (laughs) See, he intended to motivate me, and and it's worked so far. (laughs) So far. But you know that I have found engaging in spiritual ministry to be equally grueling. There have been times where I gave everything. I worked hard. I got up early in the morning. I I got up early in the morning. I stayed up late. Only to fail by earthly standards. Or to receive firm criticism by another believer. There have been times when I felt satanic opposition. And attack. See, engaging in spiritual tasks also requires hard work. And in verses 12 through 18, Paul issues three commands that should compel the Philippians to a selfless mindset. And tonight we're only going to look at one of them. Verses 12 and 13. First, I want us to see the challenging means of achieving selflessness. It requires hard work. And in verse 12, we learn that we do have an obligation. Look at verse 12 with me. In your Bibles, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, and here's the command, work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. Here we learn that our obligation as believers requires work. It says specifically in the text that we're to work out our salvation. Okay, now this is obviously how Christians are supposed to live. And I think it's also fairly clear in this passage that he's not saying work for your salvation. He says you should be working it out. So in other words, God expects us to reflect the true nature of our conversion in the way we live our lives. Now, if you read the commentaries in this section, they'll actually get into a bit of a debate that I think can be or can keep us from the main emphasis. The debate that they look at is, is this command a command corporately to the church collectively, or is it a command to each individual to work out their own salvation? And again, I think that that focus might be a bit off. For the church collectively to be what it should be, individuals must produce works themselves that reflect the true nature of the conversion of Christ. And if we get lost in that debate, it will keep us from the most important emphasis of this passage, verse 12. And the emphasis is we have an obligation that requires us to work. It's hard. We must labor in our spiritual growth and in the graces to which God has called us. So I would say no one should work harder than believers to work to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And, and this work, in my opinion, verse 12, requires or brings at least two implications. First, in the way this text is given to us, this challenge for believers to work in this way, uh, the first implication is the call for hard work will continue on until the day we see Jesus. You see, it's work because we are so thoroughly polluted by sin. Okay, now I'll walk through a few theological truths with you that are very important for us all to get right. Okay, so uh, first, first of all, if you go through the scriptures and the New Testament in particular, you can see that it should be obvious that as lost creatures... We were thoroughly and utterly depraved. You can go to a place like Romans chapter 3, for instance, which explores how every person is full of depravity. We were greedy for our own lusts. We had eyes for it, mouths for it, and our tongues were full of debauchery. The, the scriptures are clear. Every person is depraved. But then we learn as we're going through our Bibles and studying these things in our Christian experience we learn that as a result of God's good grace to us, as believers in Jesus Christ, he begins to change us and transform us into the image of a perfectly pure and holy God, Jesus Christ. So you got this so far. So you've got total depravity. We're fully and utterly depraved, but in salvation, God begins to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. Consequently, we must be careful not to think that we will ever achieve sinless perfection until heaven when God glorifies us. In other words, because of the remnants of sin in our lives, the remnants of depravity, and the heights of God's perfection, who he is, and all of the commands given to us as believers in Scripture, we should not imagine that we will be perfect until heaven. Okay, you say, well, this is, this is clear teaching in the New Testament. This is important to know. 
yes, but I, I want to make sure we get this. Occasionally, I come across believers who think that they've achieved a state in which it's very unusual for them to sin. Unfortunately, I've been approached by at least one person in every church that I've been a pastor at who has said this. You know, it's been weeks or months since I've sinned. And when and if they ever ask me what I think about that, my response is threefold. I first question their understanding of the holiness of God and his absolute perfections. So I'll say something like, I don't think you really have a true view of God and his perfections. And then I tell them, I I don't think that any believer can make it a day or half day, perhaps even a conscious hour for that matter, without sinning. Without some kind of self-centered, arrogant, bitter thought without pursuing their own goals and agendas instead of zealously pursuing Christ throughout the day. This is a call in verse 12 to hard work. Work out your own salvation. And we should expect that that will be true until the day we see Jesus Christ. The second implication I would have from this verse is that the call to hard work means that we must daily battle with our sinful flesh. Perhaps you become aware of some significant sin pattern or habit in your life that you're trying to, to kick. Don't you wish that you could just sit back in spiritual pietism and let God carry you to a higher level? Don't you wish that was the case? Don't you wish you could let go and let God make us better? Well, there is no magical elevator. In spiritual growth, I get in, hit the button, ding, boom, I'm, I'm up, I'm good, I made it to a higher level. But I like one theologian who says there's no elevator, but what, what the Christian life is, is a call to take the stairs. One step, day by day, daily, taking the stairs in our growth with the Lord. Day by day, step by step, we must put to death the works and the lust of our own flesh. This means that we need to daily crucify the flesh with its lust and passions. You see, we have an obligation to work, to obey, to work out our own salvation. Our obligation also requires reverence. If you see at the end of verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I take that to be in reference to our relationship to God. Okay, with with awe, with trembling before God. In all the texts where Paul uses this phrase, fear and trembling, I think it's used in reference to the reverence and the awe that we need to have for God while we live this life. Okay, so we have an obligation to obey. That's how I uh, describe verse 12. But the, the verse 13 then, but my second point is we also have equipment to endure. Not only do we have this like hard daily work, if we're going to live in a selfless way. But we also have equipment that God has given to us to get it done. Okay, so look with me in verse 13, great verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here, Paul does not just leave us with the clinical, cold, still, hard command. Work, work it out. Yes, we have an obligation to obey, but we also have the equipment to endure. He's given us here in this text 
two things. And he gives us not only the reason why we must obey God. I think he gives us hope in verse 13. He gives us hope that this is even possible. So if you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, and this week hasn't been a good one, sometimes we can lose all sight of hope. You just feel like a spiritual wretch or spiritual failure. Well, verse 13 is for you. Because in this text, we're reminded that God gives us strength. One of the questions I asked on Wednesday night of the people who came to the prayer meeting was, who primarily brings about the spiritual growth of a Christian? I gave them two possibilities. If you were here, you know this answer. Who primarily brings about spiritual growth for a believer? And the two options are God or the believer himself or herself. And I asked them to stop and to think about, well, who is responsible for spiritual growth? And I gave them a list of texts where I believe the New Testament, and this is a controversial thing in some circles, okay? But in the New Testament, it it appears to me that there are texts which emphasize the fact that God is the one who brings about spiritual growth. You got texts like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where Paul lays all of these commands upon the church. I remember when I preached through 1 Thessalonians. You get to chapter 4, and it's like there are seven, I think there are 17 imperatives in chapters 4 and 5. And so I preached like, you know, seven sermons. And as I'm preaching, you can almost see the countenance of the people over the seven weeks. Just get, their heads just kept going lower and lower and lower. Like, then you got to do this, then you got to do this, then you got to do this. But then we finally got to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. You see, there are texts in the New Testament that tell us that God is the one who does spiritual growth. He's the one that produces it. There are also texts in the New Testament, though, that proclaim that we have a part in sanctification. And while we won't look at all of these passages in verses 12 and 13, I think that you, uh, you find this. You find, yes, we have a responsibility, verse 12, hard work, laboring to, to grow. But, verse 13, but God is the one who will help us. And so if we try to answer that question from our text, who is the one who primarily brings about growth. In our text, it says in verse 12, we have a part. In verse 13, though, it says God works. So the answer in our text must be some sort of combined effort. I think we can get even more specific than that. We can see that we work in response to what God is doing. In other words, God's work informs and empowers or enables Our work. We couldn't do anything without his enablement to grow in our walk with the Lord. I was scrolling through Facebook the other day. And uh, I came across a comical video. You might think I'm a bit demented here. But a man was trying to get up an escalator, and as he's walking to it, he tripped as he got on. Now, he's fine, okay, so don't, don't worry, but he tripped as he got onto the escalator, okay, but then the video kept rolling, and this, this man tried to keep climbing with the escalator, so the escalator is pulling him up, and he's laying on it, and so then he tries to get up, and when, he, when he, he's about four, you know, four steps up, he tries to get up, and then he trips, and he falls kind of back over his left shoulder, he falls down again, 
But, you know, the whole time this escalator is just kind of pulling him, dragging him up this, this thing. We did it one more time. He, he regrouped himself, tried to, tried to get up, and he, he fell again. You know, as I was watching that video on Facebook, I thought, you know what, there's got to be a good, this has got to be a good video for sanctification. There's got to be something here. God fills us with two things. He fills us with a desire to do what is right. God fills us with the will or the desire to do his, his will. And his grace then permeates to our core. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you both to will, to give you the desire to do things for his good pleasure. And so he gives us a desire to do what is right. We don't have the time this evening because this is a short devotional, but you could write down Galatians 5.17 and study it this week. It's, it's a verse that's not really emphasized much in this text in Galatians, but I love it. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. We all feel that as believers, right? Our desires of our sinful flesh are against the Spirit of God. But the next phrase, And the desires, listen to this, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you would want to do. What I love about that passage, and again, well, I have to preach on Galatians sometime, is that passage basically tells us that as New Testament believers with an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit has his own set of desires, his own will and intent for believer. He's working in us daily to give us the will or the desire to do what is right. But going back to our text uh, in Philippians 2 and verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He not only gives you the desire to do what is right, he also gives you the ability to do it. He gives us the actual daily ability to fight sin and temptation. He enables us to do God's good pleasure or to produce fruit that is acceptable to him. As we close, I remind you that battling the flesh is difficult work. It's the steps, day by day, hour by hour. And I ask you before we take the communion, how are you, how are you doing? Is there some way in which you've fallen or you're languishing? Have you quit temporarily? Quit fighting. And may I suggest that that is the case, that this evening you repent. You thank God for his work in your life. And that you pray to him. Pray that you might sense his enablement this week and then work. Engage in the battle. Perhaps engage other people in the battle for you as you attempt to grow before the Lord. And may also remind you that God will help you. As a parent, it was kind of life-transforming for me several years ago when God gave me the thought that the greatest ally my children have to do the right thing and to grow spiritually is not me. It's not, it's not Carissa. The greatest ally that, that they have pushing them to Christ's likeness is the Holy Spirit of God. 
And it's so encouraging as a parent. God is helping you. He will help you to do the things that are right. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this service or this sermon and transition to the Lord's table, Lord, my, my heart, in my heart, I sense and know the sinfulness of our own flesh. Lord, I, I know there are believers in the assembly this evening who are struggling in some, even in some significant ways to get the victory. There are perhaps some who have fallen this week. They're struggling in their relationship in, with, within their family and their, their relationship to you. Perhaps some are discouraged. And they can't say this evening that they're working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, I would pray that you would remind us of your grace. That you would remind us of what Paul says in Philippians 2.13, that you are working in us, in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the individual believers in this assembly this week to live before you in a Christ-honoring way. In Jesus' name, amen.